What will e-commerce look like when the pandemic is over? What does fast shipping mean anymore? And does anyone actually like returns? That's some of what we're going to figure out. This is BoxCast, a conversation about current events, culture, and e-commerce logistics. From Pitney Bowes. Hey, this is VJ. I'm here with two awesome people from the Pitney Bowes Client Management Organization that I want to introduce. We're going to talk about what happened during 2021 peak from our POV, what was brought up in conversations with clients. And to join me in this conversation, I've got two folks, again, as I said, from the client management team, Lindsay Milliken and Sam Coiro. Lindsay, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and some of your background in, in the client management world and working with clients here at Pitney? Absolutely. Hey, guys, this is Lindsay Milliken. I am the vice president of the Eastern Region Clients for Pitney Bowes. I've been with the organization going on 14 years now. I've worked with a wide variety of clients, subscription boxes, standard retailers, all that jazz. And so um, I'm excited to talk about kind of everything we've experienced here in the last peak and going into this year. So nice to meet you. Awesome. Thank you, Lindsay. Welcome to the to the podcast. And I'm sure you're going to be a regular very shortly here. Speaking of regulars, we've got the man, the legend, Sam Coiro on who folks who have listened to previous podcasts should know very well. Sam, could you talk to us a little bit about the stuff that doesn't involve like protein pack cereal and your your dad's experiences shopping in, in the plaza in Toronto? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, first of all, uh, thank you for having me back. Second, I am a man, but you're the legend, VJ. Let's be clear about that. My name is Sam Coyero. I'm the SVP of Client Engagement here at Pitney. Been here for uh, just coming on 20 years. And if the graces are good, it'll be another 20 years and we can have more of these as we go along. So uh, looking forward to the conversation today with you and with Lindsay. And uh, VJ, if you're, if you're not kidding, I can give a couple funny stories about my dad, but I can reserve those for later. He typically uh, provides some good content for me to banter with during these calls. Does your dad have a funny story about supply chain challenges and disruptions from 2021 by any chance? <laughs> <laughs> I think on one of the previous sessions, we talked about uh, the fact that my dad next to negotiate in the stores, which uh, he doesn't do anymore because now he buys things online. But we were chatting earlier about the oranges. I mean, my dad loves oranges, oranges and peaches. So uh, VJ, a lot of peaches coming up from Atlanta and obviously a lot of Orange is coming down from Florida. Let's just say that he's been going back to the grocery stores lately, but he's got nothing to negotiate with. There's just nothing to do other than buy online and then just sit and wait like everyone else has to. <laughs> wait, wait, wait for the oranges to roll in, right? Exactly. Very cool. All right. So let's jump into the conversation that we've got planned here. I want to talk about what happened from our vantage point in, in peak that I think a lot of the listeners would commiserate with, empathize with around some of the themes we heard. Now I'm going to start with recapping a conversation we had with some of our, our best, and we love all of our clients, but some of the best clients that we, we were having conversations with most recently, and they're part of our client council. And the, the client council is a group of, it's sort of a rotating set of clients that, that we bring in to, to get feedback on what's happening in the market, what are they hearing, what's keeping them up at night, and how can we work with them and partner with our clients to, to better serve their needs and bring value. 
Some of the things that we pulled out, and Sam, you were in that conversation as well, so feel free to add color here. But a couple of the notes that I took from, from that conversation, one is coming out of 2020, if your technology and your bandwidth and your 3PL or, or your fulfillment operations can allow, you went multi-carrier. That was one, right? Multi-carrier was a mandate. If you weren't already multi-carrier, you went multi-carrier. If you were already multi-carrier, you went super multi-carrier in 2021. So that was I think, overarching trend number one. The challenge that that brought, I think, birthed the trend number two, which is figuring out the balance between carriers in a multi-carrier strategy and how to avoid losing volume disc tier discounts from some of your, your primary carriers. When you started to diversify, some of our clients looked at regionals, some looked at postal options like, like us, and some went to even local delivery from store if they had a store chain. So the diversification created a, a lot of an uncertainty around how do I make sure that I'm maximizing the savings on my shipping bill um, that was one. And then the second is figuring out the right carriers for the right packages. Which are the ones that fit based on region, based on service level expectations, based on prior performance, the price, the gross margin per parcel or order, a bunch of considerations to take into account. Some of the clients that we had who were smaller, more digital pure play, had fewer fulfillment centers. That's a really tough set of models to go run, especially if you've not had the opportunity to go invest in technology that can do this, or the technology has limitations around what different scenarios and different types of carriers, different type of rate structures and, and discount programs that you can model in the software. So I'll pause there. Uh, Sam, you, you know, having been in that conversation, obviously you guys both talk to clients regularly. What did you hear on top of that? Any color commentary to add? Yeah, sure. Uh, Vijay, you hit pretty much all the, the key points. The, the one that I would add was around the brand preservation. So a lot of these merchants and retailers, you know, in addition to everything you described, they're also looking to work with some of these carriers that are going to help uphold the brand that they've worked so hard to push into the market. So the last thing they want is to have a very bad experience with one of these regional players. We did have a client give an example of a wrestling type individuals delivering a package at 4.30 in the morning which is great for delivering the package, but not so great for the brand experience. So there's a, a fine balance. And the only other thing I'd add, which is interesting, is we've seen the growth of the regionals occur over the last several years, for sure. I think it was also accelerated by just the onslaught of volume that came last year. And I think a lot of retailers were handcuffed in that their primary providers were just not able to service all the volume that was being demanded of them. So it actually... For those that were not even thinking regional, it certainly put their tiptoe into the water for that. And then for those that were down the path, I think it accelerated it. And, and we actually see it in our client base. You know, you have those that had three, now they've got five or six or 10. And then those that had zero, maybe have one or two or three. Lindsay speaks to many of these clients on a daily basis. So Lindsay, any additional commentary from you? I would say, you know, the other piece of stress that came with the multi-carrier execution during peak was... Each carrier has its own set of rules, right? You have the rules of how you're going to send your freight over to the carrier. You've got pricing, which, you know, some carriers, you need a hundred page appendix just to understand some of the pricing triggers that go on. And so I think there's an adjustment period just with learning how you're going to work with the carrier that 
the more carriers you add into your solution, the more you have to keep in top of mind as you sort through which packages are going to X versus Y versus Z. That's something that they're all really trying to figure out and navigate through on top of all of the traditional stress of peak that a retailer would experience. On top of that is the like the MMA fighter factor, which I'm pretty sure no shipping platform takes into account how much the, the, the average driver bench presses in his off hours while moonlighting as a driver in the wee hours of the morning while delivering packages around peak. So talking about kind of the algorithms of which packages go with which carriers, as you said, Lindsay, one of the things that you guys have told me that we've heard from clients is forecasting. Obviously, we we know about this particularly well because we plan our labor, we plan our transportation based on client forecasts. Forecasting was challenged this past week. Lindsay, can you talk a little bit about what are the flavors of challenges that we're seeing in, in forecast accuracy when, when dealing with multiple carriers? Yeah. So, I mean, I think we all are, are aware that in 2020 peak, forecasting was a challenge just because we weren't sure what the consumer behavior was going to be. So when you layered in the multi-carrier strategies that so many of our clients and, and so many retailers deployed, it just got even more convoluted because now you're not just dealing with the supply chain issues. You're not just dealing with some unexpected consumer behavior, but now you're also trying to determine which of these boxes are going to go to which carrier based on, you know, a laundry list of qualifications. And so we saw a lot of our clients struggling with forecasting through peak because there weren't just the traditional elements of variability, but now we have this whole new element, which is, you know, okay, I'm only giving these zones or these weights or these dimensions to certain carriers. And I think what, you know, what we saw too was because so many retailers were just getting into the multi-carrier game, they did not know how to do this. And there was this very bumpy transition period where they, you know, had just deployed their new strategy with the multi-carrier solutions. They were trying their best to forecast, but even, you know, we had one client who used to forecast, I mean, to the, you know, very, very, highest realm of perfection. And once they deployed their multi-carrier solution, things went crazy. There was no sense of any reliability. It would be over 20% and then it would be under 30%. And there was no, no one could guess what the forecast was going to look like for the next week and how accurate would it would be. And mostly it's just because it is so much more complex to understand where things are going. And I would say for that particular example, it took about eight months for them to get their arms around forecasting and get back to some level of accuracy like they used to have when they had pretty much all their eggs in one basket. That's fascinating and and scary at the same time, right? Because you're trying to secure capacity. I mean, one of the reasons why you went multi-carrier after 2020 was because of capacity constraints. Right. And then not being able to forecast because you've gone multi-carrier and then not being able to say with confidence, this is how much capacity I need is has got to be pretty scary. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, your gut says maybe I should sandbag these forecasts. Right. But there's a lot of danger in doing that as well. And so, 
I think we really are cautioning clients that you just got to figure out your models before you put them into action, right? You you need to work on perfecting how things are going to work before you even start sending that first package to the new carrier, because there's just so much risk involved with forecasting inaccurately and being either locked out in terms of, you know, they don't have any more capacity for your packages or getting surcharges because you're not doing things properly in your forecast. For sure. For sure. Now we, t- we talked about multi-carrier as kind of the a challenge to deal with, a, a wrinkle in the plan. Sam, what, what else did you see from a factors that impacted forecast accuracy, but also kind of the, the caused a lot of variability in forecast changes at the last minute, the 11th hour over the course of peak? Yeah, that, that's an interesting one. On the variability, there were several instances on a regular occasion where the client would literally call us at the last minute and say, hey, Pitney, I was going to send 13 trucks on Thursday. It's now got to be 20. And the inverse is I was going to send you 13. Now you're getting five. And obviously we're trying to rationalize this with the client because to the point Lindsay was making, it does impact our ability to plan for labor and for assets, et cetera, et cetera, schedules and so on. And the reality is, VJ, in that many of these instances, another carrier might have said to the client, hey, I just can't take the volume. I thought I could because my ability as a carrier to forecast was incorrect. So I'm sorry, I'm going to screw you. And in turn, you're going to screw somebody else. And that's just literally what happened. The other lens that I would put on this, which is interesting to consider is, I think a lot of people, clients, et cetera, might overlook the fact that as these regional carriers start to kind of grow up, let's say, they too, like any logistics provider, is going to refine their own processes. So what I mean by that is think about some of the efforts that we've made as an organization in terms of streamlining our equipment, et cetera, to better handle packages and so on. By doing so, you're automatically going to exclude certain types of packages. And maybe a retailer is looking at a carrier saying, well, they're going to take everything I give them. But as that carrier starts to refine and improve the way that they process packages, they may exclude automatically some of the packages that the retailer thought they were going to be able to service. So that causes a situation, which now causes this retailer to potentially have to go and look for yet another regional carrier that could potentially handle these packages. So I think it's a mixed bag of tricks. Uh, the reality is back to what I said earlier, you know, Lindsay was kind of going there 20, you know, when, when COVID, I, I hate to say it, but when COVID first started, there was uncertainty in terms of are people going to buy? Clearly, there was an explosion, which led us to the inability for the, the logistics industry to service packages overall. And then it kind of went backwards a little bit and then it stabilized. So I think people are just on eggshells right now trying to figure out what is the next play? How should I be forecasting? And while they're doing that, companies like ours are further refining their systems, processes, equipment, and so on to better be able to serve the types of packages that we want to serve, that they want to serve, and so on. And it's going to take some time, in my view, for that to kind of stabilize until we get back to a point where forecasting is accurate. In fact, today we're seeing the opposite, VJ, where we're actually under forecasting, where we are you know, receiving metrics from clients, and then we're actually getting more than what we anticipated. So it's going the other way as we currently speak on February 15th. That's fascinating. And, and so, you know, I want to just add to the mix, you know, a, a couple of reminders we had by our count, by our research, uh, 60% of consumers had started their holiday shopping by late October, which was a significant jump over the year prior, which was 
already 2020 was a significant jump in terms of early shopping because of Prime Day sitting in October, right? Even without Prime Day, early shopping happened. And then you had this crazy mix between stores opening back up versus 2020, thanks to kind of the receding Delta variant in October, November. And then the Omicron variant coming in uh, towards the middle of December, driving to some degree traffic out of stores. But for other consumers who didn't shop early enough, didn't find the sales they wanted, were looking for promotions, promotional discounts. Some of them went into stores, but only certain stores, right? Uh, curbside pickup, I read that Walmart, you know, had one out of every $4 in curbside pickup sales uh, over the holidays, but curbside pickup was huge. Now that benefits only the retailers that happen to have curbs, right? You have to have a curb to, to offer curbside pickup. Well, if you're not a big box attached format retailer, and if you are mall based, you don't have an easy way to service the curbside demand. So there's this channel mix problem. There's a timing problem. There's a spend expectation because consumer spending has been at historic eyes, but at the same time, inflation setting in towards the, the middle of Q4 there, and then labor shortages in retail, labor shortages in warehouses, labor shortages in transportation on inbound and, and uh, at ports, just as many possible variables as could be mixed in. So, but one of the things you pulled out, Sam, in your response a second ago was the right package sizes, right? Understanding the right package size for the right carrier. I want to spend just a couple of minutes talking about a little bit about what we're talking to clients around the right package size for our network. We're on the lighter weight side of packages that, that could be shipped, we, we specialize in that. And there's a reason that we specialize in smaller lightweight packages. I'm going to give like an example that, that I was telling somebody the other day. Have you guys heard this story of like how Romans had an indirect, they're ancient Romans, not like modern Romans where, you know, you can, you can just kind of watch soccer and, and go get a pizza around the corner. I mean, like ancient Romans had an impact. The ones that built the roads in Europe had an, an indirect impact on the, the building of, of the space shuttle. And so, it, you know, it just so happens that like the width of the Roman road eventually became the guideline for the width of the wheelbase of a chariot and then eventually an ox cart, right? That wheelbase became the width of, you know, half uh, or one lane of, of a two-way road once the roads were paved. And then once those roads were paved, you had lanes that were a certain width that could take containers or goods that were sized on a certain type of pallet or a certain width of pallet off of a, you know, when, it, when eventually the time came, a railroad track. So the railroads were built to a certain size to accommodate roughly the width of what might be supported by the wheelbase of an ox cart, right? Or a horse-drawn carriage. And so then the train tracks drove the, the building of tunnels through a large part of the U.S. Now, obviously there's a little bit of variability in the gauge of a railroad, blah, blah, blah. But we're talking about roughly the same size, from a Roman road to the width of the tunnels. Now, the thing is, the space shuttle gets manufactured in one part of the U.S. and has to be brought on a train through mountains, through tunnels, to Cape Canaveral in Florida to take off. And so the size of the tunnel drove the size of the parts that could be fitted to the space shuttle. Crazy, right? Ancient Romans all the way to the space shuttle. Now, we specialize in a specific size of parcel, right? It is roughly less than, uh, let's say, 84 inches in uh, length plus girth, girth being, you know, kind of the, the, the width and depth. We specialize in that size for a reason. We're trying to build a bunch of automation, and we've installed it in facilities around, the, around our entire network of 17 facilities, both these large Eurosort sortations machines, as well as we've 
co-invented robots that sort packages in smaller format facilities to sort to what? To sort to a sack. And a sack is this weird, weird container that is unique, I think, to some degree to the type of network we offer, which is kind of sorting up until the last mile that gets to distribution through the, the postal system, right, at the very last mile. And so you want to sort it to that very last mile unit into a sack. The opening of the sack is a certain size that is roughly, that can roughly fit a box that is, let's just say, less than 84 inches in length plus girth. That's why we're, we're specializing in these certain types of packages is because the automation is built around the need to sort to a container that is a bag, a sack that has a certain size opening. So I don't know if you want to add any, any color to that, uh, Sam or, or, or Lindsay, on, on top of what we're talking about in terms of package sizes with clients. So first of all, thank you for that story on the Romans. That's fascinating. <laughs> what I took out of there, VJ, is that, I mean, just to put it into my simple brain, you've got this infrastructure that's in place. And so everything that kind of comes after it has to fit the infrastructure so that the infrastructure does not have to be redesigned constantly, 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 which is, which is amazing. And it's just interesting how, you know, those folks over at NASA kind of adhered to those specifications that were put in place several thousands of years ago. Amazing. Awesome. It's crazy. The, the, yeah, the, the, the size of space that was blown up by dynamite by some miner in Alabama drove the, plus the Romans and blah, blah, blah. Right. Yeah. Listen, I, again, you could literally parlay that into today. You know, the sack you speak of, the, the, the Euro sorters you speak of, basically 22 by 16 by 10 or less, you can consider that a happy path parcel. It'll go through our network like a, like a, like a knife goes through butter. The moment you get outside of that, not to say that we're not going to process those packages, but it does compromise the speed at which the packages get processed, which ultimately then will compromise the overall, you know, the service level or the cycle time, uh, which then ultimately compromises the consumer experience. So while I agree with you that, yes, 100%, you know, we, we, we specialize in small package, letter package. We have equipment and, 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 and sortation devices and so on that help those packages push through as quickly as possible. Why do we do that? Well, we do that to provide the best end customer experience possible, period. You know, when, when Sam orders a box from retailer XYZ and it fits those specs, 22, 16 by 10 or less, you know, they can have a very high degree of confidence that that package is going to easily get to their doorstep. We don't want any issues with that customer's experience. We don't want to, you know, any issues with the client themselves in terms of our ability to service those packages. Again, we will service other types of packages, but perhaps that's a niche space where some of these regionals, for example, like we were discussing earlier, specialize in handling oversized or even in some cases, white glove type of packages that not, not to say that we don't want them, but there could be opportunities for these types of carriers to really help kind of keep that consumer experience at a very, very high level. And I think that's back to the point what these retailers are trying to do, which is optimize that experience by spreading their packages across different carrier types, depending on what they're selling. But again, Lindsay, over to you. Yeah, I would say that's that's all true. My only comment on that is I think what we're seeing, and you can kind of check me with any industry expert, 
There aren't many shippers who do want the big and the bulky boxes for the same reasons, right? There's there's automation in many networks. Most of the time, that's best suited for the small and the light, right? And what we're seeing on the client side with the retailers is they're having to take a second look at the product offering because of the limitations within, you know, 2022's shipping preferred profile. And, uh, you know, for example, we have a client who traditionally would sell a mop or a broom on their website. And because of everything that has happened, you know, over the last year and and the need for smaller and more dense packages is they're going to have to pull that skew off of their site because the cost of the broom or the mop is less than the cost of shipping. And that goes with, for their entire multi-carrier solution. They do not have one carrier who the mop and the broom is a good fit for based on the pricing profile. So that's no longer going to be available on their site. So I do think we're going to start to see a shift. You may not, other than, you know, some of the big names that we all think of, you may not be able to find big bulky items available, at least not without a surcharge for that extra shipping cost associated with the product. And I would say the other thing that we've seen is our retailers are looking really closely at their packaging now. So while before they might have been comfortable with a few inches of extra space inside of a box that their contents are smaller than than the box that they're shipping in, they're just trying to tighten up those dimensions, you know, as closely as possible. If not, finding packaging for the product itself, so all they have to do is slap a shipping label on the product itself and send it on their way because they're just trying to get into those, you know, smaller dimensions that everyone's looking for. You know, it's fascinating. I mean, I think this is going to drive a rethinking of product design based on the pack. I mean, the example you're bringing up, Lindsay, with the mop and the broom is like, it reminds me of, and this is ironic because Ikea kind of cornered the market in flat pack furniture, right? And that was to maximize the cube for ocean shipping and full truckload shipping, they, they don't do as much parcel, right? Because they ship mostly from store and it's local delivery and you know they get their own box trucks. But ironically, they kind of pioneered that, you know, maximize the space inside the package. And really, given what you're describing, I could see a lot of, especially mass merchant retailers that sell a wide variety of products are looking for packages or products, I should say, that are designed to better fit a smaller package, like better, uh, smaller pieces that assemble into something larger, right. That pack down into a small, small box, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And anything that's collapsible or to your point that they can build, that's ideal because they can put it into that smaller box, send it on its way. It's not going to hit a bunch of accessorials or surcharges. And, you know, the consumer ends up happy because they didn't have to pay the cost of the item for the cost of shipping. So I'm going to tie this to uh, take a windy path to another example that you brought up that was that was really interesting. So right now, what we're hearing from a bunch of clients, as, as I understand, is as they rethink packaging, the box size, the corrugate size that they get cut and, and measured is going to shrink to maximize lighter, smaller weight carrier volume density. And so they're going to these smaller package sizes with smaller boxes, that's 
causing some short-term issues around leftover corrugate from last year and having to get rid of that. And a bunch of clients have talked to us about that. But related you know, packaging is is also like a, a whole industry, right? Much like printers. And you brought up an example that, you know, one of the surprising impacts of the inability to forecast or the, the causes of inability to forecast was related to printers. Can you talk a little bit about one of the examples that a client of ours had with printers as a supplier being a constraint on, on volume and forecasting? Yeah. So, you know, I think we always talk about when it comes to the forecasting, the supply chain issue, the labor shortages, even the shortage on corrugate. But we heard from one of our clients, actually several of our clients, and it depends on your consumer base. Some people listening to this may not even know there's such a thing as a catalog that gets mailed to the house. It sells you items that you may not normally find on a website, let's say. And so we've heard from a couple of clients and one in particular that got very, very badly burned this year because their printer had such a long line of orders coming in that they weren't able to print their normal holiday catalog on time. And even by you know the first week of December, when normally the catalogs would have all been printed, shipped, received in the homes and the orders placed, some of those catalogs still hadn't even been printed yet. And so their entire peak forecast that was based around the catalog dropping, the sales coming in and the shipping going out was just completely put out of whack. And they saw a much lighter peak than they normally would because these catalogs that they depend on for a good, good portion of their sales, really, they got impacted in a supply chain way, just like everything else. And so we saw... We saw some interesting sales behaviors just based on that and having to pivot all of their marketing strategy to more of the digital realm where some consumers really do prefer that catalog shopping. And, and so it was it was really a shame to see that happen in addition to all of those other challenges that every retailer faced. So in 2021, peak 2021, we proactively went out to our customers at around the end of September, beginning of October to start garnering their forecasts for the quarter. You know, granted, we understand that it's very difficult in October to predict December sales, but a lot of these clients for sure had, you know, some good wizardry that they were able to share with us. So so just kind of play this out. So in this instance with this client, in October, they did not know that this catalog would be an issue. So they're they're feeding forecasts to us in turn. We are planning for this volume, buildings, network, and so on. The fact that this supply chain issue, this in this instance tied to the printer, prevented that particular merchant from sending the catalog into the market. Well, by the time that happened, we'd already lost two months, as an example, and then and then it was just hard to scramble. So, believe it or not, not our issue in the sense that, like, as a logistics provider, you know, we're not responsible or controlling what a merchant does with their vendors and suppliers. But ultimately, this instance, it was a supplier issue that impacted the retailer that eventually impacted carriers, not just us, other carriers in their network as well. And then again, get back to the consumer experience. Now you have consumers that traditionally had bought through this catalog, didn't get it. I I know that a lot of phone calls went into this call center. Where's my catalog? I never got it. So it's just a a lot of issues that were caused simply by a bottleneck that occurred, you know, several months back that no one foresaw would cause this big of an issue. And I just wanted to double click on that because it was an important point. Absolutely. For those who 
might be listening who are totally lost. Catalogs, I think, Lindsay, you were mentioning this, is what people used to do with shopping on their phones before Instagram <laughs> created advertising. You just heard Sam, Lindsay, and I cover off on some of the biggest challenges our clients faced during the 2021 peak. Now, in part two of this conversation, I'm going to talk to these two about tips on how our clients can improve forecasting in the year ahead, best practices for shipping cutoff dates, and also how supply chain disruption has Sam's parents' cat living La Dolce Vita. I think you're going to want to check out the rest of this conversation.